Welcome to the Tanjo Tech Talk Podcast, where we take 15 minutes each Wednesday to help you upskill on a topic related to machine learning. We'll also sometimes include longer lectures and talks we give on other subjects. I hope you enjoy, and if you have any questions, you can reach out to me, Will Jarvis, at will at tanjo.ai. Thanks. Welcome to this Zoom salon today, which uh, uh, is a uh, follow-on from some discussions people in the, on this panel have been having over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we started with discussing the uh, state of education in the midst of this pandemic and trying to think about uh, how we can plan for post-pandemic education and what we can do right and better, uh, where the opportunities are, where the risks are. And while having that discussion, we uh, we started pulling on a thread about disinformation, the state of critical thinking in education and how we're preparing the next generation of students and started raising some concerns about uh, how vulnerable we are to disinformation and how do, we, how do we address that and how big of an issue is it? So today we're really gonna talk about that with the, the group that we have here today. I'm, I'm gonna ask each of you to introduce yourselves uh, but first, um, you know, the group we have, I wanted to make sure that we had people who are really on the front, front lines who are dealing with education or, or talking to students today and understand what the issues are and, and aren't, not just people with opinions. Uh, so we have a collection here, folks, including Dr. Michelle Zimmerman from the West Coast, from Renton Prep, a private school uh, just outside of Seattle. We also have Linda Bernard with us, who's uh, the head of a middle school called Canterbury School in Greensboro, North Carolina, and uh, Kevin Clark, who uh, was uh, uh, work, uh, sort of creating the brand marketing for IBM, but also is a somewhat renaissance man around a uh, variety of different issues, including education and national security. And I'll bring some perspective also from my uh, time at Lockheed Martin and elsewhere, thinking about education and national security. So first, uh, Michelle, do you wanna just introduce yourself briefly? Sure, I'm author of the book, Teaching AI, Exploring New Frontiers for Learning. And I've been speaking with tech and industry experts for the last about 10 years, asking them, what do you wish young people would know or be able to do as they go into the field? I had my perception looking at innovation and was not, um, I was assuming that democracy was a given as an underlying contributor to innovation. And I've recently started reshifting my focus on that to asking the question, what could occur if that democracy wasn't solid and would innovation be able to continue to persist? Great, well, thanks for joining us today with your perspective. Uh, Linda, why don't you introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm the director of a middle school uh, called Canterbury School in Greensboro. I have worked um, and taught all over the world. And um, my biggest uh, focus at the moment is education as a whole and how is it really serving our students and how can we reorganize it um, and basically turn it upside down so that we can uh, really prepare our students for the world that they're going out into. Great. Uh, valuable pers uh, perspective from you as well. So thank you for joining. Uh, Kevin. Hi, I'm Kevin Clark, and I'm uh, chairman and CEO of Choice Flows. We help look at uh, decisions that people need to make in the future 
and uh, do portfolio prioritization. I'm an advisor to the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center, where we're looking at uh, privacy and cybersecurity issues. And I have a, a deep interest in education and have been looking at how to uh, you know, reframe the opportunities for innovation and uh, creating lifelong learners. So I'm delighted to be with all of you. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, we also have Will Jarvis with us. I asked Will to join because he runs uh, an increasingly popular podcast, and we're going to convert some of this content into podcast format. And uh, and uh, he's interviewing people all over the all over the world mm -hmm. uh, around technology and different innovation issues. So we hope to uh, get on his schedule as well. Will, do you want to just say uh, a little bit about yourself? That's right. Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. I'm the Director of Marketing here at Tonjo, and I'm really excited for today's discussion around education, information warfare, and lots of other good topics with these very interesting experts we've gathered here today. All right. Thanks, Will. And the name of your podcast again? Narratives. Narratives. Nice, and, nice short and sweet. That's right. Uh, yeah, and uh, myself, I've got a bit of an eclectic background. I started in computer gaming, worked in movies, uh, uh, then spent a short bit as a uh, as a merchant of death working <laughs> for Lockheed Martin when they bought my last company. Uh, so aerospace, I guess, is a kinder, gentler way to put it. And some of the perspective I'm going to bring is how when I was at Lockheed in the uh, sort of 2007 through 2013 timeframe, I somewhat successfully drew them into addressing education as a national security issue, which is not a unique uh, approach, of course, because we've been doing that for some time. But that's what we're going to talk about today is what are the national security issues around how information is, is uh, provided to students and um, you know, what's unique about this pandemic and what opportunities and threats does that represent? So, you know, the first uh, question I like to, I always like to start with when I think about education is, you know, why do we publicly fund it? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of taken for granted when I ask people that question just in the general public, they'd like, well, we, we've always done that, right? The answer to that is no. Uh, you know, uh, we, we started uh, a, a federal department to look at education information, you know, in the 1860s. But the uh, cabinet level Department of Education really didn't really wasn't formed till 1979. Mm -hmm. And there were some early uh, responses, again, as a national security issue after Sputnik was launched. And we said, hey, we, we're losing this this race in science and and math. So uh, we had more of a, a federal approach to organizing around uh, education and framing it as a national security issue. But. I'd love to hear from each of you, and I know we've got, you know, two uh, educators in the private sector. But why do we fund education? Why do you think it's important in uh, in a democracy? And I'll I'll start with you, Dr. Zimmerman. I think that one of the key pieces that as education has shifted, we've wanted to have a group of people who can help support and sustain a democracy to make sure it thrives and continues on. And there's an understanding that that cannot fully occur to the best of its ability unless you have an educated group of citizens with a huge debate of our 
children who aren't wealthy able to actually learn? Do their brains have the same capacity? That became part of the central debate at one point. And when people got to the point of saying it's ridiculous, all kids have the brain capacity that other kids do. The biology is the same. They should be able to handle this. Let's try it. People thought they were radicals. Um, so I'm thankful for the group of people who fought for that to show that kids do have that capacity because the uh, underlying foundation was intended for that, first of all, for helping that democracy to persist, but then secondly, how do you help um, the infrastructure and the development of the country? Um, there have been things that have shifted along the way for the perspective or the view or the goals for public education. And some of those ideas may have been lost from time to time or people lose the purpose of why are we doing what we're doing um, to the point where it becomes, well, to make sure the economy keeps going so that we have babysitters. Um, so there are a lot of different debates and questions surrounding this and how education has shifted across time. Great. Uh, so Linda, you've, uh, as you mentioned, you've had this great experience teaching uh, and molding young minds in Africa, in the Caribbean, and now here in the U.S. What do you think is unique about your experience of how we teach here? And are there any major differences that you, you've seen from your perspective? Yeah, there are some huge differences. Um, I would say to answer your question about publicly funded education, um, most of the places I've worked, countries I've worked in, um, the education has been publicly funded in some way. Um, and I mean, the obvious answer to me is that it levels the playing field. Uh, it allows for us to have some hope in the future um, and in, in our students and in our children and in the next generation. Um, and if we're not supplying them with at least a basic level of education, um, then what are we doing? You know, and, and where is our world going to go? So I think that it is a, it's a human right to have education, not just I think it's a, it's a human right to have education. Um, and however, as a society, we enable that. Um, that's, that's what we need to, to talk about. And you know, the quality of that education um, that we are enabling is important and it, it's very relevant. And again, the relevance of what we're teaching to students um, is important. And I have seen great differences um, in the countries. Um, I do think that there is a need within the United States and across the world to change education so that it is more, uh, students are taught to think critically, they are able to reflect, um, they're able to curate information and really keep up with technology um, and finding ways for us to use technology and education, I think has reached um, a point where we really have to do that. We really have to start using technology for all it's worth um, to enable uh, a better education for our students. Great, yeah, I like what you said there about a human right, because I've often said that in an information age, having access, being able to have access to things like the internet, and information you don't have is becoming a human right. And it's a human rights issue because it, it increases the digital divide. But let's get back to Kevin. Let's talk more about this sort of, you know, element of education in a, in a democracy. I mean, Jefferson said only an enlightened people could successfully assume the responsibility of self-government. 
right? And he also said, democracy cannot long exist without enlightenment, which is a, it's more than just a basic education. Enlightenment, it, to me, is something far greater. Um, and that it cannot function without wise and honest officials, that talent and virtue needed in a free society should be educated regardless of wealth, birth, or other accidental condition, that other children of the poor must thus be educated at common expense. That's That goes well before the formation of the Department of Education and and even uh, when President Johnson started a federal program. So what, what do you think, Kevin, in terms of how important it is that we have some federal involvement in the funding of education? Well, the federal government certainly has a role to play in terms of, of creating a framework and you know a direction for creating citizens, right, that at the end of the day need to have education as foundational for their ability to function well and, and to be decision makers. Uh, the you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the, you know, the democratic experiment, because, you know, what we have in, in our constitution has become the foundation for other democracies, you know, around the world. They're still looking at what are we capable of doing and, and bringing forward. But it's also interesting to, to remind ourselves that we're a relatively young country relative to other places in the world. I've lectured all over the world at, at the university level. And I would say that given what we're observing right now, um, the, you know, the United States does not have a fully de developed prefrontal cortex, um, <laughs> that it's acting somewhat adolescent, right? And that it's going through some growing pains, right? Relative to the age of, of other countries. And we need to kind of accelerate the process of getting to being 26 or 27 years old where we understand consequences, right? Because right now, I, I think that um, we have all of the blessings that are associated with uh, a democratic society, uh, but we aren't fully prepared, right, as, as, a, as a group, right, as, as a citizenry to take full advantage of what we're, we're capable of doing. Uh, so yes, I think that there, uh, we, we need local uh, ability to address the needs of a community and we need a national framework and, uh, and we need to re-embrace right, the need to teach civics in a meaningful way all throughout the educational process and to be lifelong learners throughout our lives as opposed to thinking of education as a point in time. Great, great, thanks, Kevin. Um, you know, Will is prodding me here to remind me that, you know, anytime I bring up Jefferson, I should mention that the original ideals were of course based on white males, right? And now we've got this expanded uh, need and, and uh, I think real um, sort mm -hmm. of ecosystem interest in making sure that everybody participates in democracy. And in order to do that, they all need to be educated to that enlightenment level so that they can participate fully. But let's switch now to the to the problem. You know, the reason we're all gathered here today is to say, is there a problem, right? We, you know, we saw the storming of the Capitol. We've seen the rise of QAnon, not making this political, but let's just think about, you know, how a democracy functions in an era when misinformation and disinformation is abounding. 
and it's it's happening within and it's it's being uh, inserted from without so i'd like to hear from each of you what you're hearing and seeing in education um, and whether or not we think this uh, is an issue. It's, is it a national security issue? And again, back to you, Dr. Zimmerman. One of my big concerns during COVID goes back to what you just mentioned about some of those ideals being situated around the lens of one particular group. And as we're seeing things happen with COVID, the inequities have been there. There have been divisions in um, access and in the type of education people are getting but the ones who maybe weren't as aware of that are becoming more aware of it because of COVID and because the things surrounding COVID have amplified not only um, who we are as people, whether we're fighting for the positive or turning inward, whether we are um, having access and really reaching out to the ones who don't normally have access or whether it's separating to have more access for those who can easily afford or reach it. And then the others, oh, let's let them figure their own out. Um, so that divide is becoming even bigger. And for those who have been calling for the changes or concerns, there's a frustration as in, why are you just seeing this now? This has been going on for years. And so why is this anything new to you? Um, so I think that became some of my question early on. And I was talking with educators who were working directly with um, groups of students who are experiencing this daily. My students are a um, large percentage of families who have moved to the United States for the first time. They didn't have family who was born in the United States, um, a lot of different languages they speak. So even though we're an independent school, it's a very different dynamic of students than what you would typically think there. Um, and from that point, trying to determine whose voices are being heard in the conversations, what are the things that are being said, and how is social media influencing the way that people are getting their information and sharing it on to others? Um, so the bigger concern there became when I started seeing people post to not trust doctors, not trust anyone in leadership, um, where it went from supportive leadership to uh, like the Democratic Party in Washington state to um, anger towards those decisions and processes. Um, and so I started getting worried about the way people were maybe thinking about it and reached out to you and to several other experts in the area to see what they're noticing. Is it possible that something in artificial intelligence could be nudging or helping to target people who are um, going towards extremes and polarizing, making it harder to come to a consensus about where help and support needs to come? Okay. So, yeah. So there's a couple of things you said there that I want to put a pin in. And again, what we want to do today is sort of frame the problem as we see it. But you mentioned, you know, expertise, a distrust of expertise as, a, as an increasing problem. Um, and tech is maybe a Faustian bargain, right? The fact that we have all this incredible technology and instead of curing cancer with it and populating the stars, we're, you know, we're using it as a mirror to look at each other and to reflect uh, the things that we already believe and to maybe um, ignore the things we, uh, any sort of new information that might challenge those belief systems, what we call, I think, epistemic closure, right? So let's let's put a pin in those as we, as we move forward and talk about these, because I want to get to the technology bit in a second. Um, but Linda, what are, what are you seeing in education in, in terms of, um, you know, disinformation and, and children's capacity to, to, think critically about information that's presented to them. So I think um, Michelle's right in that COVID has kind of amplified the inequity 
um, in education. Uh, having students have to go home to learn meant that a lot of them suddenly didn't have access to the internet and you know, uh, school districts weren't supplying technology to enable the learning. Um, so we saw a great disparity um, in, in uh, resources, really. And that, that definitely uh, was something that we need to look at. I, I see it more as kind of, there are two main issues. There's the, I, and it all is underpinned by how we are choosing to educate our students. I think that um, education today faces a dichotomy. You've got this idea of personalized and individualized education where each student is developing their own kind of learning worlds and it's all centered around the student and the individual. Um, and you, we're trying to balance that with also teaching a student about society and how to be a useful member of a community and how to, you know, how to contribute to a community. So those two things are polar opposites. And I'm not sure that we are, as a, a country, doing the best job of educating both those things. I think that we're doing um, a pretty good job of raising some uh, egocentric students and learners um, with not as much regard for the community whole as we need there to be. Um, that said, we also see um, a lot of students with a, with a voice on lots of different topics. Um, we recently saw with school shootings, you know, there were a lot of students that came out in protest and their voice was heard. And, and that was something that was heartening um, to see. And it's something I want there to be more of um, and more focus on enabling student voice and enabling um, our students to feel like they have a voice. Um, I also think that the other element of this is uh, what our goal is in education. Uh, it's not anymore to create people that are going to work in factories or who are going to, you know, be hamsters in the hamster wheel. We're not looking for hamsters anymore. Well, we are to some extent. There are still there is still a need for hamsters, but we also need to to be developing people who are going to think for themselves. Um, and I guess my biggest question in education at the moment is, are we really teaching our students to think? Um, or are we teaching them to just absorb information and then mind dump it to the nearest test? Um, and then after they finish that test, they don't remember it a year later. You know, what are we actually doing and what is the outcome that we're looking for? Um, I believe it's, it's to help our students think in a way that benefits society and themselves. No, that, that's very interesting. I think, uh, you know, we've, we've talked quite a bit about, you know, the industrial sort of form of education where it's really about, you know, what does it take to embed information in, an, in, a, in another mind? Uh, and it's about, you know, embedding and retrieval. But how do we, but, but really it should be about processing. So, so Kevin, you know, I, I, you and I were talking about a week ago about how, uh, you know, a, a young person today, if you, well, if you read the New York Times, there's more information in one week of the New York Times today than a 19th century um, person might be exposed to in their entire lives. So we've got abundant amount of information, but the, the challenge now is what do you pay attention to? What, sh what can you safely ignore? What information do you actually act on, upon and can you actually trust? 
So can you talk just a bit about that issue of, of trust and, and um, about uh, how we, um, you know, what, what tools do we have to actually be, uh, be able to uh, uh, address this through education? Sure. I mean, one of the things that I try to do, I, I, I you know, kind of pick this up from a philosopher, Stephen Toulmin, is to rid people of unjustified assumptions. And there are a lot of unjustified assumptions sitting underneath our education system. I mean, Linda, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, we are still operating in, in a modality that is to train workers, right? Is to show up on time, right? To have the basic, you know, skills. Uh, we use the gift of the internet. You know, I'm, I'm uh, really blessed to have the opportunity to work with Vince Cerf who invented it um, you know, over at the People Center Internet. And we're using it right now to algorithmically punch our amygdala, right? To punch the animal brain, all right? on a 24 hour basis to a flight or fight response. And if you get exposed to that, we're not taking advantage of the other side, which is the abundance, as you point out, Richard, the abundance, the, the diversity of great material that we could be putting into a different system, right? To help people uh, understand, you know, and, and develop the critical thinking, you know, that we want because we've never had access to this amount of, of content. It just isn't organized in a way that if we flip the classroom and gave you, you know, access to the very best, right, uh, chemistry lecturer in the world, right, that's top ranked, and then used the next day to have a discussion with our students, right, either online or in person, you know, to talk to them, work with them, uh, we haven't even started, right, to build that level of trust and to use the gift, right, that has been given to us because we're just sitting in the uh, swimming in this sea and we don't know how to organize it yet. So we need some system thinking and we need to reorient the entire education system to the development of critical thinkers that are going to be great citizens. I think could you speak a little bit to the way you're talking to me about the education model that helps young people not only look at a specific topic, but a trade or a vocation as well. I really liked the way that you framed that and what you said students got out of it. I mean, the, the example that I used is Warren Wilson College, which is over in the western part of North Carolina. They have a dean of work because when you go to Warren Wilson, you're going to learn and, and get a degree in English or business or you know, math or whatever it is, and you're apprenticed into a trade simultaneously. You're a chef, a woodworker, groundskeeper, uh, you know, hotel manager. Uh, they, and so they learn the dignity of labor at the same time that they're learning the, uh, you know, the kinds of things that you would find in a normal college curriculum. You know, the uh, one of the positive things about that is you get a balanced human being coming out of that experience and the, the people are lined up at the door to hire these students because they're, they're actually ready to, to do something. They're life ready as opposed to simply being knowledge worthy. Right. So I'd like to switch now to what I think is part of the meat of this. I think technology is a big 
um, leg of this stool. Another is um, the role of narratives and storytelling, mm -hmm. right? So I'd like you to think about just the role of information narratives, storytelling in education and think about you know, how susceptible our curricula or our curriculum is to internal manipulation or external. When I say internal, I mean here within the borders of the United States by various factions, let's just call it that, and then exterior. Um, you know, uh, about two years ago, I did a tour of Italy speaking at various universities about technology like VR and AR and uh, AI. Uh, but one of the things I did as a subtext is I asked um, these university audiences about, you know, what happened in the Ukraine. You know, we had a, a president who was removed from office in 2014 in the Ukraine. And I just asked them a simple question. Was that a coup or was it a revolution? And it was interesting to get those answers. You know, and it, the further south I went, like when I was in Bari, the University of Bari, they all basically said, oh, it's a Western-based coup. Right. And when I start asking them about where they got that information, why do they believe that to be true? They all said, well, it was on the news. And if you dig a little bit deeper into that to talk about to ask about, you know, what news were they receiving? You find out that it's the Russian sponsored uh, Italian uh, language news stations on satellite in Italy. And as I went around to the various, you know, and started climbing up through Rome and, and Florence and uh, up to Milan and Venice, you know, it, it, you started seeing more of a mix because as you go north, you get more of a, uh, a centrist uh, view of the world. Uh, but it was really interesting to see those narratives and then understand that there was no competing narrative coming from the West, that it was a revolution that was the, that was sponsored by the people to overthrow this dictator. So um, not a dictator, but a Russian sponsored person. So of course the 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 um, reality or the truth is probably somewhere in, in, in between, but you know, what should we be doing or thinking about and how susceptible are we to internal disruption and external manipulation when it comes to storytelling, storytelling and narratives, whether it's science um, or uh, even history? Dr. Zimmerman, what do you think? I am really interested in this topic because of some of the things I've done with my students over the year. Uh, over the years, there's a website that's intended to be a hoax it's called the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. It was designed for that purpose. I've talked to people in tech conferences over the last several years. They're saying, oh, it's so well known. Um, that's kind of overdone now and kids know not to fall for that. And I test that theory every, almost every single year, maybe every other year, so the kids don't <laughs> remember it as well. Um, and without fail, they fall for it every single time, or even in the Pacific Northwest, they have those same types of trees. We know the location. So I would hope that even being in that place, in reality, you would question what you're seeing as an octopus that lives in the pine tree. Um, and yet, just having an example you can go through misinformation and disinformation and explain what that means, what to look for, and they can nod their heads and say, yes, and I would never fall for something like that. But then you give them a website and say, tell me three things you learned. You can either use just the resources I give you or you can find your own. 
and partially because of wanting to go the path of least resistance or get something done as quickly as possible, most kids default to saying, I'll just take what you give me. Um, especially if they've come from another school system where a teacher hands them something and you make the assumption that what you're handed is true, factual, and accurate because the teacher gave it to you, especially if those narratives are reinforced at home. But even with having training in advance of saying, um, these are why it's a, reasons it's important to make sure you're looking for other information and not just giving, taking something that someone hands you, you can cognitively say, yes, you can get a 90% on a test, you can get 100% on a test, and then not know how to apply it. Which goes back to what Kevin was mentioning. You can have civics classes, and you can have citizens who come out knowing the right answers to put in a blank line, but when it comes to actually enacting it, it's an entirely different scenario. Mm -hmm. So when your amygdala gets punched and you start getting this emotional reaction, their responses were things like, oh, we really need to save these octopus octopus because they're becoming endangered and there's a, um, a section on the website where we can donate money let's create a campaign and raise money so we can donate it even with the training in advance there's not even a question of is this a real organization where might the money be going to um, so when i ask them what do you think i meant by what are three things you learned they will default to the idea of finding a fact in the text that you give them because so many kids have been trained that way by their teachers across time Instead of saying the three things I learned were, there are websites that are hoaxes. If I type in and look for my own search, just on the first thing I'll find is that it's a hoax website or don't believe everything you read. Those were the things that I was looking for. Um, so it speaks to me that there's something much deeper in the way that we've asked kids to understand and process information. And when we get to the point of 12 years, maybe eight years, maybe six years of kids going through this system, why would they do anything different when they come out as adults? Take the information that's handed to you and respond. And kids will either tend to conform to that style or rebel to go one way or the other. They'll be involved in cliques or feel like they're outsiders. That's the system that's been designed for them. So why should we be surprised that adults are not sure how to respond any differently in society once they get out of that system? Hmm. Yeah. If I could just uh, uh, do a uh, you know follow on to that, I, you know I'm a big fan of of uh, narrative that is informed by you know data that that you know is not simply confirmation bias, right? That your your um, your grazing, right? Um, all of the different places that we should be encouraging people to have a diversity of, of inputs, right? Um, and I don't see that. I, I see assignments being given, you know, pay attention to this mm -hmm. and less opportunity for students to bring something into the classroom from their experience or something that they've been asked, all right, we're going to discuss this, you know, bring something, right? That that kind of uh, community sourcing, you know, would create, you know, a really big difference. I'm just going to tell you that my, the best class I ever took was from a guy named Ed Ruzick. And Ed decided before I took earth science in the ninth grade that geosyncline theory didn't work anymore, right? That that wasn't the way the earth worked, that he liked this new thing called plate tectonics. And... Hmm. We chose to learn that together. He said, we're going to learn this from Scientific American and articles I'm going to bring in because I'm convinced this isn't right. We're throwing the textbook away. 
And that was the most vibrant class I ever took because he was deeply involved in it and we were learning together, right? How can we move the teacher into a learning together modality as opposed to teaching to students? No, that, that's really interesting. So yeah, Linda, I'd like us to, to switch now to thinking about um, this idea of, of uh, you know, textbooks and teaching for the for a test by preparing yeah, students uh -huh. to take tests. I think it's really interesting to find out as I was speaking to some ex Pearson executives recently that Pearson is more or less out of the textbook business. They sold off to some private equity firm because they found it's no longer profitable to sell textbooks in, in the US because you can't just focus on uh, Texas, Florida and California anymore because now you've got 12,000 or more, however many districts there are now, really making their own independent choices around uh, you know, what, what goes into their curricula. So you know, are, are we still teaching uh, for tests and what threats does that create? And you know, what can we do? I mean, is project-based learning and, and uh, some of the other methods we're beginning to use, is, is that enough? Uh, what, do you, what are you seeing, Linda? Yeah, so um, I think that the biggest danger in this is that we put a band-aid over the problem. Um, we tend to, in education, want quick fixes, um, ways to quickly squash things that are happening, change it, you know, in, in incremental measures. Um, whether that's because, you know, there's, there's an urgency in, in teaching students that are in front of you, um, whether it's a resource problem, um, you know, there isn't enough funding going into education. Um, and also, traditionally, change is something that takes a long time in education. Um, for some reason, educational software is always the last thing to be updated. Um, and, you know, any kind of uh, real innovation happens outside of education, which is, it seems to me to be crazy, but it is it is the way of it. Um, and then it filters into education after that. Um, so we are unfortunately left uh, as teachers or as administrators putting band-aids on problems instead of looking at it from that 30,000 foot view and going, yeah, okay, so what we're teaching our students right now isn't really gonna help them be good citizens or think critically or process information more effectively. So let's completely change it. You know, let's let's figure out a way to do this. And we just don't have the the infrastructure, the opportunity, um, the space as a as a country to do that in the United States. Um, especially the more fragmented it becomes. You know, the more the more that states take their own take education into their own hands, the more that you're going to have all these different ideas from people that really don't have any idea how to educate children. Um, you know, you've got politicians saying, this is what we should do. No, they don't know. They haven't asked teachers. They don't know the best way to educate children. And yet they're the voices that are impacting um, the education of our children, uh, which seems to me to be completely wrong. What I think needs to happen um, is that ultimately our students need to learn how to evaluate information um, and understand intent and relevance. Um, just because we're inundated with information now 
um, yes, the internet is available to everyone. Isn't that wonderful? And yes, the internet is available to everyone. And isn't that scary? You know, there, is, there are two sides to that sword. Um, and I don't think that um, we are educating students to be able to evaluate information in a way um, that makes it helpful for them to make decisions. Um, and I think technology can help that. Even though computers don't yet think for themselves, they can support the thinking process. Um, they can pose analytic questions. They can mirror our thoughts back to us. Um, and they can help with reflection in a way that allows us to evaluate all of this information that we are faced with um, in a more effective way. Great. Now that that uh, that helps us segue over to this issue of technology. Is it helping or hurting, uh, and how can technology be used to help? Now, uh, as someone you know, Will and I are working with artificial intelligence. We're seeing the rapid acceleration of its capabilities. Um, I just looked at something today where an AI system is able to produce uh, a college-level paper. Uh, within 20 minutes that can pass muster with a reviewer and it does it all by itself. So it's, it's getting interesting very fast. So we're continuing to think about this, this role of humans and machines in balance uh, to optimize outcomes and, and also I think to evaluate information. But it's, it's certainly true that we can pre-filter and the question is, should we? And that's, that's one question I have for you guys is, you know, we can, we can create AI systems that can evaluate new information and look at, for example, is this a source that's, uh, that's considered to be trustworthy? Has it, been, uh, has it been peer reviewed? Has it been promoted or approved by other sources? And, and how far is it from uh, the existing knowledge base? You know, is, is it a big, a big leap away from it and therefore requires more evidence before we start accepting plate tectonics or that Pluto is not a planet or that, you know, there's life on Mars, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but what do you guys think in terms of the role of education? Is it, is it making your job easier? Is it making it more difficult with regard to this? I would say an example is um, when my students started looking at exploration to what would you imagine you could do if you were exploring Mars? And they thought, oh, this is a really simple problem. You just do this. The more they got into it, the more involved they got, they started realizing there's a lot more complexity. And this is where I would push back a little bit on the general idea that teachers know best how to educate kids. Um, there are a lot of teachers who do, but there are also a lot of educators who don't know yet the complexities of what's going on with artificial intelligence or with the types of technology that exist. That's part of that conversation early on about the inequities and gaps. One of the things that really weighed on educators was being handed a device really quickly without training and saying, now figure this out, get it all online. You need to shift quickly. And if someone's not used to technology in the first place or hasn't looked at the legal or ethical or policy or any of those impacts that technology can have, and then all of a sudden say, give, give students this, use it with teachers, um, there can be a lot more harm with a teacher thinking they're helping someone move into a futuristic way of educating than someone who has maybe a background of some of the implications that can go on. 
So I think that this concept is something that's really important for educators to first be aware of what exists, the positives and negatives, as Linda mentioned with technology, and what can happen if in best intentions, you accidentally start moving kids in a direction that can be harmful to themselves or others, which goes back to, should we filter everything then for teachers? So if they don't know how to do that themselves yet, they can't lead children. So if we just filter it, so they only get what they need to get, will that make it easier? That become, uh, brings up and becomes one of those ethical questions of then who's filtering it and what do they have access to and what information is left out? That comes up with the question of even history and biases right now. Who's and, and AI can be biased, we know, right? right. Absolutely. I mean, Richard, you should unpack for a moment, you know, what you shared with me uh, about the lessons from the Diamond Age book. You know, the, the notion of, of having a mentor that knows you be, uh, well. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's something we've talked about in education for quite some time. Alan Kay, you know, from Xerox Park talks about it. But this was the Neil Stevenson novel, The Diamond Age, where uh, there was this concept of the young lady's illustrated primer, right? It's this idea of wealthy people had access to a super empowered AI system that imprinted upon and and um, modeled its its sort of personalized learning path after the person after the, the child that it was created for. But it wasn't just AI, you know, helping you as you walk down the street and describing things uh, around you and teaching you um, the various um, elements of, uh, of the curriculum. But also there were these concepts of actors, right? Virtual actors who were teachers who could come in. So you need a lesson on physics where here, here's Stephen Hawking, you know, giving you a lesson on physics and and you know, if it's mathematics, it would be, you know, some, some per, perhaps a, a real person or even a virtual version of John von Neumann or Sir Isaac Newton or something like that, that's, that's advancing your knowledge. And when it senses that your uh, anxiety or boredom are increasing, then it would like switch over to some entertainment mode and tell you a story or sing you a song or whatever. But it's, it's all about the shortest path to mastery. So that vision is what was behind the one laptop per child idea that, oh, if we just have this piece of technology that's easy to use and let's like sprinkle it across Africa and everywhere. And that that, that simple connection to the internet with some basic collaborative learning tools will, uh, will achieve the equity that we're looking for. Not clear that that really achieved its goal, but I think that vision is still there of you know, uh, of, uh, of these uh, virtual uh, intelligent tutors, which we've learned, by the way, people like Dexter Fletcher, uh, who've studied that for DARPA and for other folks have, have realized we could have a two or three sigma improvement over a human teacher by, by using intelligent tutors, uh, but they're so expensive and so specialized. So you would spend millions of dollars to make one that that could just teach a, a, a Navy person how to use a sonar system. And, but I think it's probably worth the investment. If we could do one for algebra and do one for calculus and geometry and for various versions of science, um, I, I think there's a great opportunity there. And we'll get to that in later uh, episodes of this as we go through this three-part series. But thanks for mentioning that. Richard. You had a comment, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about um, your question earlier was about uh, tech, 
politics and whether the relevance of them and why this, um, why, you know, textbooks aren't really being used so much in education. And I think it's uh, circling back to what you just said now, it's about the fact that, you know, nobody uses a, a, an encyclopedia that's a book anymore because it's outdated, right? But mm -hmm. the textbooks that we've got in schools, um, even the online ones, all these companies have done is transferred the thing that was in print onto a screen. Right. So disappointing. I mean, there's so many options now. And you've just spoken about all kinds of super exciting things. I mean, I would love to have um, Einstein teach my kids physics. I mean, yes, sign me up, right? But where and how does that happen? And how can we enable that? And instead, what we've got is some piece of a PDF. And, and how does it get through state approval? And that's why some of these things are so simple, as I've understood the mechanics of the textbook system, right, is, is that you've got you know, there used to be a few states that every all the other states would follow, California, Florida, and Texas. That's been dismantled, thankfully, because that was creating a problem for disruption. But now that we have this massively distributed sort of decision system, uh, it, you get, you know, and I'd love, we have, no one's mentioned Common Core yet, but I'd love to hear what you guys think about that. Is that a, is that a help or a threat or a disservice to education? What do you guys think about that? Any thoughts oh, on Common Core? First. I have a lot of thoughts, but Linda can go first. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts too. Um, Common Core itself shouldn't have been an issue. Um, I do think that some of the stuff in the Common Core curriculum itself is really good. It does teach our children, or in theory, it, it is supposed to teach the students to think critically. Um, but it does set I, a low bar too. Like these are the, it, wasn't it a minimum set of standards? Right? It was. It was, and in some ways, a benchmark is helpful. You know, it's it's a way to make sure that every single school across the nation is is at least meeting that standard, right? Um, the issue is the way in which it was implemented, and uh, just what Michelle was saying just now. You can't throw technology into a classroom and expect the teacher to catch it, just like you can't throw a new curriculum into the classroom and expect a teacher to hit the ground running with it. That's impossible. And the issue was with training and preparation of the system itself, um, which unfortunately meant that, you know, people rebelled against it and, mm. and weren't interested and shut it down. And, and then there was all this focus on testing. Um, so now, instead of it being a situation where we are teaching children to think critically, instead, it's now all focused on tests. And can you get the best test score? What do you think, Michelle? I think we had a focus on tests even before Common Core, so I don't know that that was the thing that changed that focus there. But I really do think that the intent behind Common Core makes sense. It was trying to push some of the things beyond boundaries of why aren't they learning algebra, why aren't they learning calculus, to try and see some cross-cutting concepts. Um, I felt that it was intending to try and nudge some of the interdisciplinary in ways that we wouldn't see in standard content or curriculum. I talked with um, Roger Shank the other day about his perspective from AI, and I saw one of his articles that really pushed back on what AI was capable of doing right now compared to what humans are able to do. And I asked him what his view on education was, because I said, I'm intentionally looking for counterexamples. That's something that we don't teach kids to do. And often it doesn't even get introduced to humans until you go into graduate school or research program. 
And we're assumed to just say the knowledge that's out there, follow it. And it's there because someone else has vetted it. But we don't push back and say, what's an absolute opposite perspective? Or what can I hear about something who, uh, some different aspect. And his core piece came down to why are we still isolating subject domains? Why are we saying algebra? Why are we saying, saying, why are we saying art? Why aren't we helping them see things in context in an intersection? And I believe that's what Common Core was trying to nudge without having such an upheaval disruption to a system that's been siloed. And um, I believe that's one of the things that, Kevin, when you and I are talking, the types of work that your geology instructor was doing brought interdisciplinary. It got people to push back on ideas. Or the, the college you're mentioning that has people look at there's not one necessarily better than the other. Here's an academic level and here's a worker, but it helped you have another respect for the types of skills that are required that are often really interdisciplinary. So I think that there are some levels of kickback that came that were unjustified. And this goes with your phrase also, Kevin, I'm trying to remember the exact phrasing, but I- Unjustified assumptions. That one, thank you. Um, that once that took hold and spread among educators, you would hear them say things like, oh, Common Core is horrible. And if you would question and push back and say, why? What don't you like about it? Oh, it's just horrible. Everyone knows it's horrible. The kids can't learn. The parents don't understand it, but couldn't give a reason why. And so those are indicators to me that there's something more concerning going on with the adults who are leading children, if they can't come up with reasons for themselves, but just repeat things that they hear of other people, and it becomes like spreading activation, where you lose what could be beneficial to education by just shutting something down. And I'm going to have to go in a second because there's another meeting I have to host. I'll just say that while I don't have any thoughts about Common Core, I do have a thought that's adjacent in STEM which is the science, technology, engineering, and math needs to have a like STEM plus because people need to learn the, uh, you know, the technology that is associated with interaction with each other, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, symbolic logic, you know, to understand our argumentation. We need to just put enough in there because that's also part of that citizenry, all right, um, equation that we need to close. It was yeah. great being with all of you. Looking forward to Thank being you. on future calls. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, I was, uh, I'll just close by saying, uh, and I was uh, on the board of a school out in Malibu, started by uh, James Cameron and his wife, Susie. Uh, and the idea there was to really start with a clean sheet of paper, which is what I want to do in the next session, right? So those of you who are listening to this, if you're interested in being invited to that next session that we do, uh, then please put your comments below, um, and, and uh, Dr. Jarvis Hill will, will uh, collect those for you. But the idea was start with a clean sheet of paper, look at those questions of why do we publicly fund education? What kind of human beings do we need in the 21st century, and how do we make them? So what is working or has worked with the current education system and technologies and methods we're using, and what else do we need to add in order to make you know, people in the 21st century who are good stewards of the planet, who think like uh, scientists and mathematicians and poets and artists and become the architects of our future and can think critically. So that's what we'll we'll be addressing uh, in the next session is the what's working today and what do we need to build? So I look forward to 
talking to all of you on that session. Leave your comments below if you liked or, or got upset about anything we talked about today. And thank you, uh, Linda. Thank you, uh, Michelle, Will, uh, Kevin, who's already left. And uh, we look forward to carrying on this conversation with all of you. Thank you. Thank you.